We lift our eyes to you, Lord, as we come to think about your word, to pray that you will be here, very present, speaking to us, causing us not to be woodlice who run away, but moths who come near and meet you and know you and are filled with you uh, and can serve you and reflect you into this world. So please help us just now as we come to your word. In the name of Jesus, amen. 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 Please, uh, will you find in your Bible Isaiah 49? And I was thinking about what the uh, application points of this sermon would be. And I have got some, they get a bit ponderous. But if I were to say the application point of this sermon uh, would be for us to be persuaded again that Jesus is a wonderful saviour, uh, I, I think that would be a good, a good thing to aim at. I'm just imagining perhaps as somebody who's come in and, and they're thinking, what is Christianity all about? Why do they make all this fuss about uh, this man Jesus? Maybe I could answer that through this text uh, this, uh, this morning. So, we're in Isaiah 49, and let me just arrange myself a little bit better. So let me ask this question. Which is the one voice that all the nations should listen to? Which is the one voice that all the nations should listen to? So I think the BBC World Service would rather like it if the BBC World Service was the one voice that all the nations listened to. BBC, actually the government invests money in beaming the World Service. Do you have anybody listen to the World Service? I do sometimes. It's, it's, it's good, broad, good broadcasting, but I would not wish to say to all the nations of the world, you must listen to the BBC World Service. I think that would be a bit... Anglo-centred of me. I'm sure lots of other nations have really good broadcasting services themselves. Uh, I wonder whether Vladimir Putin would, would say his is the one voice that everybody should listen to. I, I'm going to disagree. Uh, he is a powerful human being, one of the handful of really powerful human beings in the world at the moment. But... I think it would be arrogant of him to say, you should listen to what I say, you should listen to what I say, you should listen to what I say, so I'm going to disagree. Coca-Cola would be a good candidate for the one global thing across the whole world, wherever you go, just correct me if I'm wrong, with people from different countries here, does anybody come from a country in which they have never heard of Coca-Cola? Because it's surprising, uh, when I go to Sri Lanka, uh, I don't know any of the language. I don't know any, well, that's not quite true. I don't know much Tamil and I don't know any Sinhala. But I, I, there's one word that I'm meeting every day. Coca-Cola, 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 Coca-Cola. Well, I think that it would be wrong to say every nation ought to drink Coca-Cola. That's sort of capitalist exploitation, and Coca-Cola seemed to be quite good at it. Isaiah 49, verse 1, says this claim, Listen to me, you islands. 
hear this, you distant nations. And here in the Bible is a voice which claims that every continent, island, nation should listen to this voice. So which, and I think this is actually not arrogance, it's not imperialism, it's realism. And I would like to try and show you why I believe this is completely realistic. And our question is, who is the person speaking? Who is the person to whom we should be listening? And why should we listen? And I think one, one could add to that, would one want to listen to such a person? And I must say that, having thought about this all through the week, I've come to the conclusion, I would really like to listen to this person. What he has to say and what he has on offer, I find really attractive, and I hope that you might find that too. And just in case you are going to sleep in the next few minutes, let me cut to the chase and say, who is this about? It is about Jesus. Uh, Jesus himself certainly believed that this part of the Bible was about him, uh, and you could almost imagine him as a child reading this and taking the cues for his life from this. Oh, this is, my, this is what I'm to be. This is what I'm to do. He certainly believed it was about him, and his followers certainly believed it was about him. And I'll give you chapter and verse in due course if we've got time. So, with any set of words, and not least words from the Bible... The, in order to understand them, we need to put them into a context. And so let's think for a minute about the context of this. Geographically, these words are spoken in what we in Europe would call the Middle East. Uh, it's in the territory which God leased to the ancient nation of Israel. Uh, it, there were conditions to the lease. Uh, that's geographically. Historically... Uh, we are about, uh, I think, now, 700 BC. I think that's about the time. Could be wrong on that, but I think that's the sort of time it is. Let's put it into a little map of important things in the Bible. So if we go back, we go to Abraham and Isaac. And what was Isaac's son? Jacob. Jacob. Let's see, we've got those names. Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Jacob had his name changed. Yaakov, Jacob, uh, means supplanter or schemer or deceiver. And it got changed. Nice name to give to a child. Um, a bit like fool, Nabal. Um, anyway, let's not go there. His name got changed to Israel, which I think means prince with God, something like that. So uh, uh, this guy, Jacob, uh, got two names. Jacob and Israel. Following on the story, you, you all know this, but I think it's worth pointing out. I put uh, a 12, I think I put 12 on, well, don't count them. There's, there's, there's 12 things there. 12 coming after Jacob would be the tribes, the sons, the tribes. Uh, one man becomes a nation, 12 tribes, and God is supervising this whole process and he uh, surrounds this with promises and purposes and plans. And I think in a simple way we could say that the role of the nation, Israel, so from this one man there comes 12 tribes and a whole nation, and the role of this nation is to show to the other nations 
how good God is, so that they should look at Israel and say, wow, what a wonderful way you have of arranging your, uh, your social life, your political life, that comes from a God who must be so wise, and when you pray, God answers you. We'd like, we'd like some of that. That was what they were supposed to do. But as history goes on, Israel fails, and she fails to be this sort of light to the nations. Uh, and her particular failure is not the failure of ignorance, but the failure against knowledge. She knows an awful lot and doesn't put it into practice. It's a particular sort of failure. So there's a line showing how, as time goes on, there was a nation, and then whoomph, uh, a fall. Uh, and the fall is that God says, well, the conditions of your lease are that you should follow me, and if you don't follow me and trust me, then you get kicked out of your leasehold land. And they got kicked out in the exile. And the book that we've been reading from, Isaiah, is a prophecy, and it takes account of the certainty of exile. He can see this coming. He says, look at the way you're behaving. Look at the terms of the lease that we had. You're going to get kicked out. So there's that. And he also sees ahead the promise of a homecoming, that God won't let that situation persist where none of his promises seem to have happened and nobody seems to be being blessed and it all seems to go terribly wrong. So uh, those arrows there representing a homecoming. And that's the context in which Isaiah is sitting just on the, on the edge of all that, seeing what's going to happen and looking forward to the homecoming. That's the, the uh, historical context of it, which I hope made sense. Does that make sense? Let's just think a little bit about the failure of Israel. Uh, Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations. I, I've used that word light here, but I think that describes the situation. Uh, but she became uh, worse than the ignorant, sinful nations. Ezekiel prophesies this, you become worse. You had all this. Look at the way you behaved, appalling rather like a child from a privileged background, really going absolutely crazy and getting into all sorts of stuff, you'd think, how could you possibly be so ungrateful to the upbringing you've had? Anyway, this is how Israel behaved, like a spoilt child. There are the nations, and uh, worshipping all sorts of things like elephants, uh, they're totally ignorant of what God's really like, uh, but they, the nations take Israel into exile, into captivity, into prison. There, there's Israel chained up in prison. And uh, in prison, you don't get the benefit of marvellous recessed ceiling lights. You're all in the dark. And if I click the right thing, yes. So, the, so they, they sit in darkness. The people sit in darkness. There they are. And they're far away from God rather than near to God. And that's sums up their situation. Captured, captives, in darkness, far away. In a sense, a sort of metaphor for the human condition, really. Captive, 
People are not born free. Uh, they're in darkness and love darkness rather than light. And in our natural condition, we're far away from God rather than near to him. So that, the, the, the situation sort of stands for the human condition. Well, that's the context. So let's look now at the servant in Isaiah 49. And so I'm asking the question, who, who is the servant and why should we listen to him? Well, we'll just see what the text says. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my birth, he has made mention of my name. So, first thought at this point. This person is saying, I'm not a last-minute plan B, not quite what God had wanted person, that God has specially chosen me, appointed me from before I was born. Before I was born, the Lord called me. So, called before birth. And in the Bible, there is such a thing as God planning things before people are born. Uh, we could put it under the general heading of predestination, God prearranging, preordaining somebody's life before they've even started it. Not just knowing what's going to happen, sort of in a crystal ball, but planning what would happen. And this servant seems to come under that heading. Uh, it says later on, he was chosen. Before he was born, this was his destiny. A little bit like Star Wars, doesn't it? But I think Star Wars, it is your destiny, Luke. It, this is, uh, Star Wars got it from the Bible. It isn't the Bible got it from Star Wars, you know that. He was specially prepared beforehand. Let's move on to the next verse. And he goes on to say, He made my mouth a sharpened sword in the shadow of his hand he hid me he made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver it's an interesting thing for somebody to say about themselves isn't it uh, you notice the weaponry metaphor uh, like a sharpened sword like a polished arrow very interesting weapons uh, they're hidden he made my mouth like a sharpened sword in the shadow of his hand. He hid me, and the arrow is concealed in the quiver. So, in a sense, it's a good job the servant is telling us this, because otherwise we might not realise his status as a weapon, because he's hidden, isn't he? If you look at, if you look at the situation, the sword is, is hidden, am I right? In the shadow of his hand, he hid me and the, the arrow is concealed in the quiver. So if you were to look, you would not necessarily detect that there is a weapon there. There's a certain hiddenness about this servant. But when he's given the word, his mouth is a sharpened sword. So it's something that he can really achieve through his words. 
Imagine the young Lord Jesus reading this and thinking, really, that's, that's what my father is saying about me. And, and, and the arrow, interesting about an arrow, to the best of my knowledge, you, you just use an arrow once, don't you? There's got one thing that you use that arrow for. Uh, it's not like a machine gun. You can just go choo 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 Just one, one shot, one thing. You wait, one thing. Bang, that's it. And the servant is saying, that's how I am. I'm sort of hidden, concealed. I'm a powerful weapon in this sense. My mouth, the things I say, and perhaps this one specific critical point at which I'm taken from concealment and have the desired effect. The sword and the arrow. What else does he say? So the servant is still speaking and he reports to us, this is autobiographical, you understand, he reports to us what the Lord has said to him. Uh, he concealed me in his quiver and he has said something to me. He has said this, you are my servant Israel in whom I will display my splendor. There's a lot worth pondering in those words. You are my servant in whom I will display my splendor. It, it, you could do a clunky translation and say, in whom I will be beautified. So the, the word is, is, is beautiful. You are my servant and through you people will see how beautiful a God I am. Isn't that fantastic? I would like to know who this person is. I would like to know who God is. I would like to see how beautiful he is. And the servant says, if you want to find out that out, you look at me, because that's what the Lord has said. You are the one in whom I will be beautified. And he's the key instrument in this. That He's the one through whom I will show my beauty. And I notice, so this, confuse, this is confusing, verse 3, you are my servant Israel. So, I thought Israel made a right mess of everything. Uh, they, they were supposed to do something, but they failed to do it. But the servant here is referred to as Israel. You are Israel. So now I'm, I'm thinking there's perhaps more mystery to this than I had at first thought. Perhaps it needs a little bit of careful pondering uh, who this person is. Is it the man Jacob? I mean, he was Israel, wasn't he? But he was a crafty schemer. Uh, is it the nation Israel? But they were a failure. Is it some new person on the scene whom we have not yet come across? Is Isaiah looking forward to somebody who is yet sort of over the horizon, but is somehow linked to Israel? Well, let's hold that thought. Who is the servant? Why should we listen? Well, we should listen to him because he has the power of a secret weapon, because he's been planned 
from before his birth because he's God's key figure. You are my servant. In you I will show my splendor. And let's go on in verse 4. Now, what is the servant speaking? Autobiographically, I have labored for no purpose. I have spent my strength in vain and for nothing. He says three times. He uses three different words to express uh, the frustration and disappointment. Uh, it's a temporary experience because it moves out of this in just a moment. But let's give weight to it. I've labored for no purpose. I put in all this effort and there is a point at which or a time at which I can say there is nothing to show for this at all. I have spent my strength in vain. So the word is hevel, which is the same word as vanity, vanity, everything is vanity, or meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. There's a point in the servant's career at which he, he could say, everything that I've achieved is just like a breath, just like a vapour, like smoke that just disappears. And he could also say, for nothing, and if you're at all interested, I always assume people might be interested, uh, this is the word tohu, which is what's used at the beginning of Genesis, quite famously, the earth was without form and void. Uh, and the word tohu is used there, sort of just shapeless, um, random, no form or pattern to it. And the, the servant says, do you know there's a time in my career where that's what everything looked like? Failure. Now, people might point the finger and say, what a failure you are. Look at you. It's a time when everything they achieve seems to just disappear. What have you achieved? The time when his career seemed to be just a, a massive rubble. Shapeless. Interesting, that isn't it? I've tried so hard, the servant says, but no one follows, no one sees, no one believes, no one is changed. I don't know. Can you think of anybody who could fit this sort of picture of the servant? Can you think of anybody at, of whom, at a certain time in their career, People pointed the finger and said, look at you, you're rubbish, aren't you? You've done all this, and where do you end up? Well, Jesus on the cross. It's a fascinating insight, isn't it, into the, uh, the subjective, what that must have felt like, what the pressure on the servant must have been. That's, you know, you're just rubbish, aren't you? There is a but but let's do the bit before the but, which is that. And now let's do the but. But, but, what is due to me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. What is due to me, what I really deserve, is in the Lord's hand, and my reward, my wages, actually. You would use the word wages for that. What I've, what I've really achieved is in the Lord's hand. 
And there's an interesting verse in uh, 1 Peter. So this is now looking backwards at Jesus. And it references his experience on the cross. And it says in 1 Peter 2.23, they hurled insults at him. Well, they did. They said, you're rubbish. But he did not retaliate. And he suffered, but made no threats. He didn't say, just wait till I get you, Lot. He suffered, but he made no threats. What did he do? He lived by faith through that dark period. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He said, this is my current experience, but I know this is not the way God sees it. And if I wait patiently, God will give me the wages I deserve. He will give me the justice I deserve. And at the moment, I'll live by faith. That's what Jesus did. And of course, Peter is quoting it so that we could follow in that example. So that we might have perhaps the experience of, fee- of, of being told where failures, where unimpressive people don't believe us and people might mistreat us and he says well don't retaliate just hold on as the servant did in faith to the one who judges justly who gives what is due in due time the background is getting lighter because the text gets brighter as we go through Verse 5, and now the Lord says, he who formed me in the womb to be his servant. To, now let's see what it says. This is, my, this is the purpose, this is the task that the, the Lord God has in mind for his servant. I want you to do this. I am tasking you with this to bring Jacob back, to turn Jacob back and to gather Israel to himself. So that's what I want you to do. All that exile and everything that we saw, the captives, the uh, people sitting in darkness, I want you to turn all that round. I want you to bring them back. I want you to set the captives free. I want you to bring them out of darkness. That's what I want you to do. That is my task for you. His mission is to restore, well it goes on actually, uh, and and says of the servant, I am honoured in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. So this is about the worthiness of the servant. And God is saying of this servant, not only is he the key to my purposes, but I have to say I think he's totally brilliant. This servant, do you remember how it was in the, you might remember a fortnight ago in Isaiah 42, here is my servant, in whom my soul delights. I don't know if you remember that bit, in whom my soul delights. And God is saying, not just he's useful and effective, but he's brilliant. Uh, uh, what does it say? I am honoured in the eyes of the Lord. And you're thinking, who could that be? Who, of whom does God say such things? Um, Behold my son with whom I'm well pleased. Who does God take 
from apparent shame and failure and lift them high and give them a name that is above every name and seat them at the right hand of the majesty on high. Is there anybody that we could think of that God does that to? Because that would be the servant, wouldn't it? I am honoured in the eyes of the Lord. And it goes on uh, in his enthusiasm for this servant in verse 6. Do you know, restoring that nation is too small a thing. That's, that's a bit trivial. Um, just one nation to bring back the captives of that one nation, that's too trivial. Oh no, I've got something which much better fits your worth and your glory. I want you to be a light to the Gentiles, to bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. What amazing and amazing statement that is. We've been thinking about the, the, way, the context of this is in the, the, the context of one nation's history. And the Lord says, you know, that's just too small. You know, the thinking is too small there. The, the, um, and the, the brilliance of the servant is just too small for that. What we have in mind is something far greater. He will bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. That, that's more like it. And you notice that we were thinking, is he actually, is he, he said he's Israel. Is that what he means? Does he mean the nation? And if, if he did, it would be a real conundrum, wouldn't it? Because he's restoring the nation. Do you get me? Verse 6, I want you to restore Israel, as referred to as Jacob here. Bring back those of Israel I have kept. Uh, so he's probably not saying the whole of Israel, but those I have kept, the kept ones of Israel. Um, so I think he's someone different to Israel, but closely linked with Israel. And he's bringing back the kept ones of Israel. But not just that. His, God says, oh, no, that, that, would, that would just be trivial. Um, just trying to think of an example of something trivial where you say, no, no, no. Um, let, let's suppose, uh, it's always dangerous to do this off the top of one's head, isn't it? Um, let's suppose uh, we engage Chris Fry to, um, uh, to construct a, um, a cornflakes packet. Let's say, and, and he charges, I don't know how much you would charge, £120 an hour or something like that, and the cornflakes packet, say, do you know a man with that experience and training and experience? That's just ridiculous to employ him to make a cornflakes packet. Let's employ him to make a skyscraper or a bridge or something that's a bit more fitting. And this is what it is with a servant here, isn't it? It would just be trivial to get him to bring back his... No, the whole world, that's what we want. A light for the nation, salvation to the ends of the earth. So if you are, I'll put a list here... Uh, so, the Swiss people, this is the one for you. Okay, are we going to do Swiss? Yes, yeah. Great see. Morning. Nice to see you. Uh, I won't do the whole lot because we'll be here forever. Um, if, if, you are, if you are Welsh, if you're Arab, if you're Persian, if you're Italian, we've got any Italians this morning? Ah, nice to see you. Uh, Russian, Ukrainian, English. We've got any English people? One or two? Okay, right. Whatever nation you are, this servant is the one who has been sent for you. 
He's been sent for you to deliver you from captivity, to take you out of darkness into his marvellous light, to set you free, to bring you home, to bring, as it says, my salvation to the ends of the earth. Who is the servant? Why should we listen? It looks as though I've repeated this. Yes, I think I should have. Verse 7. This is what the Lord says. Again, this is autobiographical. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel. And even that, that, that phrase is quite interesting. The Redeemer. The job of redemption would be if, you're, if in your family somebody had run out of money. Uh, in, in, in ancient Israel there was a provision. You could sell yourself as a slave and somebody would take you on, look after you. It wasn't as bad as... Uh, as, as we might think of slavery, a more friendly institution, but you could sell yourself as a slave. And somebody could say, oh, that's a great pity. Um, old uh, Isaac there had to sell himself as a slave. Um, this is a short-term solution. Let, let's see if we can help him. How much have you got in the bank? Could we buy him back? Uh, do you want to look in your ISA? and see if you can get any out. I might have to give a couple of months' notice. And somebody would work this out. It would typically be an uncle, a family member. It's called a goel, a redeemer, kinsman redeemer. And they'd figure this out, and they'd buy back Isaac from slavery. Thanks, uncle. That's, oh, thanks a million for that. That's great. And Lord, the Lord says, I am the redeemer of Israel. I am the goel the kinsman redeemer. It's almost like saying, I'm Israel's uncle. I see the trouble they're in. I, I go to the trouble of, of putting together a, a package to redeem them. And then this is put with the Holy One. You see, it's sort of interesting two things put together. I am the redeemer of Israel. I am the Holy One of Israel. And this is what he says to this servant. Now then, again you get these two sides of the servant's career. And just as, an, uh, uh, as a thought, you might be thinking, I'm not sure whether I believe this, uh, not sure I'm persuaded by it. Here's a thought, and you can see where this is going. You, you can see that we're, uh, we're, we're saying that this is a prophecy about Jesus. And you might think, it might sort of like to ponder this one. Isn't it amazing that in the Bible, 700 years before Jesus Christ, this sort of thing was written that Jesus fitted exactly? I think that's really an important point. Uh, you know, you might say, well, all religions are just made up uh, and I don't believe any of them. That might be a rather superficial response to this text because it prophesies something that actually is fulfilled in very profound detail later on. Anyway, here we go with this verse 7. He was despised of soul. So in this case, it isn't in him my soul delights, it's in him my soul abhors, he was, or despises, he was despised 
and abhorred, uh, rejected by the nation, and he becomes the, uh, what's the word, um, the servant that nobody respects. Think of a word for that? Dog's body, that's what I was thinking. Dog's body? Sorry? Underdog, Underdog. even better. Yeah, the underdog. This is who he is. He's despised, abhorred by the nation, the underdog, the servant of rulers. That's the lowness of the servant. And see how this reverses quite remarkably. To this person, kings will see you and rise up, you know, in respect. Princes will see you and bow down because of the Lord who definitely does what he says he will do. That's the idea of the faithful there. The Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. I was just thinking, uh, there is an example of uh, somebody, when they were born, some kings came from a long distance through some bizarre uh, circumstances and they bowed down before this person. Do you want a little picture of it there? Anybody think of such an example? The wise men. Kings shall bow down before you and golden incense bring. There's a song that says that. And Napoleon, now then, just bear with me. The screen might go funny. There's a wonderful quote from Napoleon in his view of Jesus Christ. And I've written it on here, but I've no idea how to get it. Just to see whether... Ah, is that done? No, I can read this bit. He says... It's quite a lengthy quote here. Um, I see in various other leaders, those who have the first rank in the state and have sought the best solution of the social problem, but I see nothing which reveals divinity and nothing announces them divine. On the contrary, there are numerous resemblances between the, these other leaders and myself, says Napoleon, foibles and errors which ally them to me and to humanity. It is not so with Christ. Everything in him says Napoleon, astonishes me. His spirit overawes me and his will confounds me. Beside him and whoever else in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. He is truly a being by himself. His ideals and his sentiments... The truths which he announces, his manner of convincing are not explained either by human organisation or by the nature of things. His birth and the history of his life, the profundity of his doctrine, which grapples with the mightiest difficulties, and which is, of those difficulties, the most admirable solution. His gospel, his apparition, his empire, his march across the ages and the realms, is for me a prodigy, a mystery insoluble, which plunges me into a reverence which I cannot escape, a mystery which is there before my eyes, mystery which I cannot deny or explain. Here I see nothing human. The nearer I approach, the more carefully examine. Everything is above me. Everything remains grand and of a grandeur which overpowers. Well, it's a very long quote. 
uh, and it goes on. Isn't that amazing that Napoleon, who would have known about power, says Jesus is far, far greater than I am. Now, I've now managed to click this in a way I've got no way of knowing where I am. Just bear with me. I shall click next and hope something happens. Right. Let's, let's go on. Oh, I can't. <laughs> it's now so small I can't read it. Um. So he brings people home. Let's do the next few verses. So again, this is the, the servant being autobiographical. Verse 8. This is what the Lord says. In the time of my favour I will answer you. And in the day of salvation I will help you. I will keep you and make you a covenant for the people. So this is God saying how much he is with this servant. How totally he's on this servant's side. And there follows a, a most wonderful description of the way the servant brings people home. And it says in verse 8, this is in the day of favour, in the day of salvation. And interestingly, there's a quote in the New Testament where the Apostle Paul says, that's now. That's what, that's what is happening now. So let's bear in mind that what we read, in some sense, is happening now. Now is the time of favour. Now is the day of salvation. And what he does is, well, let's just see, to restore the land, to reassign its desolate inheritances. So getting people back into an inheritance so that they're not paupers adrift in a meaningless universe, but they are people with solid inheritance, like sons inheriting from their father, if we put it that way, to reassign its desolate inheritance, to say to the captives, come out, the people who are chained up, come out, and to so those in darkness, go free. He takes away the darkness and gives us his marvellous light. And then there's a rather beautiful description. It's put in terms of pilgrims, exiles, going back home. So if you imagine you're in Babylon, uh, you've perhaps been in prison and they say, oh, we've got, gained a release for you. You're going to go home. Fantastic. Long way, long journey from Babylon back to Jerusalem. And he says, just think about this. They will feed beside the roads. It's a bit like sheep. It's a sort of sheep idea. Um, verse 12, he'll take them home, but they will feed like sheep and find pasture on every barren hill. That's a rather, to my mind, a beautiful picture of the Lord taking his people like sheep across the desert, but making sure, you know, the sheep are going, bah, what are we going to eat? Bah, we haven't got anything to drink. Bah, it's jolly hot here. Bah, I don't know where we're going. And the, and the Lord says, look, I've got all that under control. My servant is tasked with bringing you home. So stop the, bah, what are we going to eat? He will make sure that you are fed. Bah, we've got nothing to drink. He will make sure that there is water on the way. Bah, it's jolly hot. Well, all of those things, he will, he will feed and protect and guide. Look what it says. They will feed beside the roads. 
Find pasture on every barren hill. They will neither hunger nor thirst, nor will the desert hunt heat or sun beat upon them. He who has compassion on them will guide them and lead them beside springs of water. And that, that, that verse is actually quoted in Revelation as, as sort of putting into a nutshell what Jesus does for his people. He leads them through a barren land but he makes sure they always have food. He will go to all lengths to provide them with living water as they travel. And there's a massive civil engineering project because it's so important for God to get his people from this distant place to get them home. If there's a mountain in the way, God will get out his great big JCBs and he will flatten that mountain so that they can go home. He will turn mountains into roads and if there's a valley, he'll get the rubble and fill it up and put a nice smooth surface on the top so there's a highway to go home. Isn't God great? Isn't, isn't, isn't the servant... See, this is what makes me think, I would like this servant to do this for me because this is what I need. I need somebody to guide me through this life and to provide for me. I can't manage that on my own. I want somebody like this to do this for me. And you know, it's not, it's using the exile as its starting point in a very beautiful way, but it isn't just about geographical relocation. It's about the salvation of Jesus Christ. You see, he says, they will come from afar, from the north, from the west, from Egypt. Well, they weren't in Egypt, from the region of Aswan. Yeah, but he's saying, that's how I'd like you to think of it. I'm going to bring all my people home. That just seems to me to be totally brilliant. Uh, he brings us home. He brings us where we have always longed to be. He brings us and provides for us on the way. And when we get home, there'll be no more sighing or sorrow He'll wipe every tear from every eye and we'll just be so glad to have got there. It'll be what we've always longed for. We'll be with his people. We'll see him and be there forever. Um, I was going to say some more, um, but I think we'll leave that for another time. Um, what am I clicking here? Oh, let's forget that so who should we be listening to well I don't think the BBC World Service and I don't think Vladimir Putin or Coca-Cola I think it's Jesus and he says listen to me this is what I have to offer this is who I am and it's put in a way well I'm trying to present it in such a way as you, you might say I don't know whether I believe that, but I wish it were true. Uh, that sounds so good. I really, I really would like that. Let's sing together. Eight, seven, nine.